Hi, this is Margot Escott with Improv Interview, and I'm talking to a woman who needs no introduction. Her name is Mashku Pala Kaba, otherwise known as Jill Bernard. Hi, Jill. Hi, Margot. It's great to talk to you. Yeah. So I've been reading about you. I've never met you in person except for a Skype talk, but uh, I have so many questions. I want to start with when you were five years old. Let's go back a bit. You know, I'm a therapist, so let's take you back to five years old. When you sure. Saw, when you saw Oklahoma. Yeah. I remember it super distinctly. My family went to see that an outdoor production of the musical Oklahoma, and I just looked at the people on stage, and I thought, yeah, I'll do that. That seems like a good job. <laughs> and so you got bit really early. And uh, yeah. tell me how you discovered improv. Studying theater in college. And I, I already felt kind of bored with it. And then a colleague, a classmate, Mikey Heinrich, and I would sit in the back of a boring class and just kind of riff with each other. And he said, you're really funny. Uh, you should come audition for this group I'm in, comedy sports. So I did, and I got in, and that was the start. And when I tell people that today, that you could be a professional improviser with zero improv experience, they're horrified. Because now people who audition for comedy sports have already trained somewhere, maybe have studied improv for a year or two, and then they audition. But I really just came in off the street. Hey, that's fantastic, because usually you have to go to level, what is it, 35 before you could ever think Right, <laughs> minimum, minimum. And so you fell in love right away, and did you, you preferred it to acting? Well, it is acting. It's just a different kind. Right, right. But you mean, you don't, you don't have to learn all those lines. That's the part about acting that gets me. Yeah, I think what I didn't like about script theater was, yeah, I'm terrible at memorization, I don't really like taking direction, and I get bored if we have to do something more than once. So scripted acting is not for me. Yeah, it's hard for me to learn all those lines, too. So Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's why improv, uh, when I discovered it, just changed my whole world and hopefully my attitude. So you've been, <laughs> you've been teaching for a long time, haven't you? When did you start teaching? Uh, 1997. Wow. Yeah, so just past 20 years. And I'm not psychic yet. I really thought that I would be psychic in year 20 and just know what students are thinking. Still hasn't kicked in. So do you like level one teaching your first-time students? How do you enjoy that? I love it because there's so much people intuitively know that they don't know they know so that when you point it out, it's this revelation. Also, it's all the love. Level one, you make so much progress so quickly. And then the upper levels, it's kind of slower. It's kind of inch by inch. Uh, level one is this opportunity to introduce people to something entirely new. And it's really cool. So for somebody who's never improvised before, I don't know why they'd be listening to this, but if they had never improvised <laughs> before, what would you tell them? And how would you, tell me how you start your classes kind of your definition, and then what do you do right away in the beginning? Wow, I don't know. I can't remember day one. Of, oh, I did just do a day one of level one. Um, we just play some games right away to let you know that you're going to look stupid 
Like, you're going to look stupid. Improv looks stupid. If you're trying to be cool, it's not going to work out. And then also some games to make it okay to make mistakes. Because you're going to make a lot of mistakes and they're going to be super useful, which is the opposite of how we normally treat mistakes. So to get people okay with taking risks, making mistakes, looking stupid on day one, then we can move forward from there. So, And also maybe something little to trick them into doing their first scenes. Like, let's just do a quick little two-line thing. And, hey, look, you did your first improv scene without us making a big deal of it. Right. And do you play a lot of games? Your background comes from comedy sports and other right. venues. So you do a lot of the games. And I see you study yeah. with some, some impressive people. For example, um, McNapier, Del Close, Paul Sills, Keith Johnston. Uh, any of your, who was your first mentor that really impacted you, maybe changed your game? My first mentor, I would say, well, is a combination. When I started at Comedy Sports, Audrey Crabtree and Shannon Lang were doing the training uh, and it was really great training because, like I said, I had no improv background, and they were organizing just the regular practices. And through those regular practices, I got the basics of improv. So I'll always be grateful to them. Shannon doesn't do improv anymore, and Audrey is, well, she's doing improv, but she's also a really talented clown. Um, she's in Missouri, and she does clowning at pretty much all over the world. And that was really my first, I would say, long-form big-name mentor uh, was uh, Joe Bill. I hired uh, Bass Prop to come to the Twin Cities in 2002. And at the time, we didn't have a lot of long-form happening. So they kind of brought ideas that were completely new. And for me, it was super revelatory to take that first workshop with Joe Bill. It felt like he had words to explain things I'd been thinking about but had no, no vocabulary for. And I was so relieved. And I want to say vindicated, but really just uh, had my ideas endorsed and, and cemented, and, and they grew with his influence. I love Joe Bill. I love watching him perform, and I love hanging out with him, talking with him. He's such an incredible mind. Just love him. Yeah. He's really, really great. He's a Great person to hang out with, I think. What about Del Close? A lot of my teacher studied with Del Close in the late '80s, I think. Um, so uh, he, there's a lot of stories about Del Close. Do you have one of those Del Close stories? Well, in the interest of full disclosure, yes. most of the people you listed, I, I took a festival workshop with, which means in the United States that means I studied with them for one day, possibly an afternoon. Uh, except I did take an intensive with Keith Johnstone. So I probably spent four days with Keith. But with Del Close, we just spent one day. He was older at that time. He was really crabby. Uh, I remember we took, a, it was a one-day workshop at the Mall of America in, in Minnesota. And he spent the first 20 minutes kind of railing about how terrible the show he'd seen the night before was. So everybody in that class who'd been in the show was kind of mortified. He was saying that his perspective was that, that short form has no value and that short form without the gimmicks was nothing. And that we played the, that 
the game story that he'd seen played the night before, they were playing it better in 1951. So he's, yeah, he just went off on a tear. And we sat there and let him do it because we really wanted to take the workshop. <laughs> and then he, we took the workshop, and it's the only time I've ever felt like we, the students, failed the instructor. He wanted to teach us a form, and because we were a mixed group of people who didn't know each other and had different skill levels, we weren't able to execute the form he was trying to teach us, and he was sorely disappointed in us. And But the good news is, I never have to wonder if Del Close would have liked me, because he did not. <laughs> That's great. I did not make any impact on him. So I don't have to I don't have to perpetually have that that concern in the back of my mind. How would Del Close have have thought of me? Oh, he didn't give a fuck about me. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, leaving a class feeling like a failure is one of the worst experiences I've ever had. It's really interesting. Yeah. I've never I've never had that experience where it seemed like the, prof the, the teacher had something they needed from us that we couldn't deliver. I've had, I've been done badly in class before, but the teacher never made me feel like, <laughs> like they had a horse in the race. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, coaching is a coaching is an art form. To really be able to side coach is truly an art form. And uh, yeah. when I started teaching, I was not very good. <laughs> Hopefully, with time, yeah. I've gotten. Uh, improved as a teacher right so and what's interesting now is I think my own pendulum is swinging uh, because I a few years ago I realized that I don't care what students are doing wrong it's not really interesting to me we have such a limited time together that I want to focus on what what they naturally are doing or the skills they have and if we focus on those things um, we can we can really it's like a rocket ship going into space. When you see them shoot a rocket, various parts fall off and burn off in the atmosphere, like the booster packs and whatever they don't need just burns off. And thinking that the bad habits will fall off, and the good parts of the improviser will shoot into space. I love you. And as to win, I'm sorry. So so anything that anything that we're doing wrong or that's getting in the way of progress, I'll mention, but I'll, I'll mention it kind of as a, a side note. It's like not a big deal to me. It's just, it's just a minor tweak that we can make. And so I don't want to put a lot of energy on that. If there's something you need to work on on your improv, I, I, I think I'm starting to mention more of that, but I'm going to mention it. It's not, it's not the important part. The important part is what you're doing well and what you're aiming toward, not the things that you're doing wrong. Well, that's where the uh, concept of your reset button comes in, which I really enjoy. Can you explain that a little bit, what the reset button is? Well, I think there's a lot that's gotten in our way as human beings that make it hard for us to improvise, like the way we thought, the way we've been told you're supposed to behave in public, right? Um, and there's a lot of fear and habit getting in our way. And so the idea of a reset button is can we like take a step back and know that when you're eight years old, you were right. You, you had, you had it down when you were eight. We can reverse things and kind of start over with less self judgment and self doubt. And 
I think the, the idea of being able to be a failure is important as well. I think yeah. it's really hard for people to let go of that inner judge and start releasing. And, and I think mindfulness plays a part in it. Do you, are you into mindfulness with your training? Yeah, I just, like last summer, that's all I was teaching was mindfulness for improv because it's, it's about noticing. It's about noticing. Uh, the best way to improvise is to be open and noticing what's going on in kind of a non-judgmental way to find. Just notice what's happening so that you can tap into that and make the scene be about what's really there. Exactly. I use a lot of mindfulness in my training as well. In fact, I'm teaching a bunch of social workers improv with mindfulness in about two weeks. So do you have any, tip, do you have any tips for me? <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, I like to come back from break and ask what they noticed during the break to get their eyes even attuned during the break to notice things that are lovely or curious or interesting. I will use that, certainly. <laughs> so um, you've been a creator and innovator in your work, starting with helping to form the huge theater in uh, Milwaukee. And uh, was that 2010 you opened up Huge? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We opened it uh, in 2010. We'd been a theater company since 2006, but we were producing shows just around town in Minneapolis. We didn't have our own space. And that got to be kind of a drag. You know, we were always ending up, they would book over us if there was a wedding or we'd arrive and the set that was on the stage was too big for us to be able to play around or other obstacles like that. And at the same time, there was there were a lot of long-form troops performing around town at other theaters, other spaces. And it made us think, hey, maybe it's time for there to be uh, Minneapolis's first exclusively long-form theater. So we uh, we formed a nonprofit. We started looking around for spaces. Uh, it was super difficult because we didn't really have any money. Banks just laughed at us. <laughs> we uh, And realtors wouldn't show up. I remember us standing out on the sidewalk. We had an appointment to meet with a real estate agent. They just didn't come. You know, it was not, or that we'd be shown a building and they'd say, oh, by the way, someone already leased this building, but we thought we'd show it to you anyway. I think anyone who's bought a home has had these same stupidities. But uh, finally, we found a landlord who was willing to rent to us and give us kind of a break financially until we could get up on our feet. Because, of course, the process of getting permits for construction and licenses for entertainment and and so forth took quite a while. We signed the lease in August and weren't able to open until December. So that was a really nerve-wracking time. We couldn't start construction until November. So we spent months and months not being legally allowed to do anything. That was very upsetting. Oh, I bet. But you were playing, yeah. you were playing around town still. You weren't stopped. Yeah, and we were doing classes in the vacant space. Our first classes, we had to say things like, uh, okay, please don't touch that pile of boards with nails or that, <laughs> or that stack of, of broken mirrors. Let's just stay away from those. Because it was honestly a construction zone. <laughs> That's great. So um, 
One of the things I really loved, and it, I read that it started in 2002 doing Drum Machine, which is yeah. a marvelous form. And um, to keep describe that a little bit to people who've never seen it, and we're going to be I'm going to be attaching some links to this podcast so people can see your performances. Sure. When I, I always tell the audience that it's a it's a one person improvised, sweepingly epic historical musical, and then they laugh because that's a mouthful. And then that's what we do. I uh, it's not really a solo show because I try to get a musician. Mm-hmm. It's called Drum Machine because of Drum Machine, but it's so much better with a live musician. And what I do is I interview a member of the audience just for inspiration. They tell me a bit about their life. And then I ask for a historical event or time period or invention. And I put those two ideas together and make a story out of it, a musical. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you do ask for somebody who's not already an improviser. I noticed that. Right. Because there was one clip where apparently a woman had come with somebody who was an improviser, and he kept trying to talk, and you kept politely telling him, you're not talking to him. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Joe Bill loved that moment because it was in Dubai. Um, It was at the first improv festival in uh, the Middle East at all. Wow. And yeah, and it was of course uh the 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 status of women is really kind of dicey in the Middle East sometimes. So we didn't know how the audience how would react. And improv itself is super risky in the Middle East. For example, in Saudi Arabia, it's illegal because the government needs to approve the script. And if there is no script, there's nothing to approve. And and so in different places, in Dubai, it's presented not as a performance, but as an educational lecture. Um, so it's, it, it's super interesting. So we didn't know how the audience would react or how people would feel about me, like, shutting this guy down. <laughs> but I did it anyway because I couldn't not. I really wanted to hear what she had to say about her own life and her own words. I didn't want a guy chiming in. Um, <laughs> so and, and, and I feel like I, you know, as a as a comedian, I kind of have license to rib people a little bit, so I felt okay about it. No, I thought it was a great show. And you have been to how many? Your passport must be phenomenal. Have you been? To yeah, so many. I'm going to Chile in October, and that will be the 20th country that I've performed in. Oh, my gosh. Oh yeah, my won't gosh. that be nice? 20th. 20 and, and then in terms of the United States, you performed in almost all of them. Isn't that correct? I just hit 40 states. Wow. I'm trying to bust through that last 10. I'm 45 years old. And wouldn't it be cool if I could do 50 by 50? Yeah, it'd be awesome. Like I have five years to visit two two states a year and then polish it off. Wouldn't that be cool? Oh, that'd be totally cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. Unfortunately, some of them are kind of patchy. Like there's weird I have to I have to go to Idaho and it's all by itself surrounded by states that I have visited. And I think Delaware is surrounded by states that I have visited. Um, so there's not a really nice tour path. <laughs> wow. 
But still, to accomplish it by the time you're 50, and maybe even 49. Oh, Why wait till 50? 49. Right. Yeah. No, let's not put pressure on that last year. <laughs> so when you speak internationally, most people are speaking English in those countries, or how do they understand you? Yeah, isn't that lucky that English is the international language of improv? Such a tremendous advantage. Everywhere I go, many countries have a festival in English so that it can be international. And the students, sometimes when I travel, there, there's a translator. Uh, and so you teach the class uh, in translation. But I always watch the scenes. Whenever possible, we watch the scenes in the performer's native language because it, for some reason, uh, it's easy to understand what's happening, what you need to understand about a scene when you listen to it in a foreign language. I don't need to know the nouns, right? I don't need to know the specifics. That's not what I'm coaching when I coach improv. Um, it's a case, but most of the time, I call it listening with the heart. Isn't that goofy? No, I just I call it listening with my heart because I watch the scene and I'm not listening with my ears because I can't understand what they're saying. But I'm listening with heart and I'm coaching what is there. And I can see the emotions. I can see the dynamics between the characters. I can't understand the words. And sometimes I can tell, like, wow, I bet you this improviser is super verbally funny and I'm missing all of it. <laughs> or I, I always edit the scenes at weird times. Because I'm not able to listen for a good last line of a scene. So I end the scene and the students all look at me kind of funny because that was a weird place to end. Or sometimes I, there was a time I, I side coached a pause, because uh, we were working with what it's like to have a silence in a scene. Mm -hmm. And I side coached this pause into a scene accidentally, like the line before it was like, so who's the father? And then I side-coached a pause and made the scene like phenomenally awkward without meaning to, but it turned out really beautifully. Oh, how did you do but that? It, what, what did you do? What did you do with your body? I, I was just guessing. Um, <laughs> I just guessed. Um, it's interesting because it's really best if they perform in their own language. When people are improvising in translation there's a hiccup there's a second step there you know they always coach improvisers don't be in your head right so to improvise in another language you have to be in your head because you have to go there to get the, the words that you're looking for right when we perform internationally there's always there's always this second thing going on this second layer where we're playing with language and talking about language it's unavoidable in a lot of the international festivals, we do shows that specifically play with that. There's a show that we'll do called Lost in Translation. Each of the improvisers performs in their own language. So you end up with a show where someone's speaking Spanish, French, Italian, uh, Hebrew, and English. And, no one's, and some people can understand each other and some people cannot. You end up with this beautiful hodgepodge where meaning is subverted and and, uh, and language and, and, and nonverbals sort of collide in a really interesting pastiche. 
It's fantastic. Are you filming a lot of your videos and are you writing another book? I'm not writing another book. I'm just writing the same book. I just keep putting out an edition that's slightly longer. <laughs> I just want to write the same book till I die. I don't want to write a different book. Um, and maybe when I die, it'll be a quarter inch thick uh, instead of less than an eighth inch thick. Um, I, I, I really rely on the festivals to video. And what's lucky is that nowadays, most improv festivals offer that to their to their performers. They make a video so that the performers have something to take away from the from the event. So now, in but the, I don't do in the summertime. What festival do you have in the summertime? The Twin Cities Improv Festival here in Minneapolis is in June, which I really love. Uh, we're now in our gosh twelfth year. Wow. And that's a that's a big deal for us. This summer I'm also going to that the Improvaganza in Edmonton, Canada, which I've never been to before. Oh that'd be great. Which be, uh, yeah, I can't wait. Oh, that'd be great. There's some wonderful folks in Canada. I really love them. Right. Run into. So um one of the things that really, really impressed me was the Tiny Funny Women Fest that you hold in January. And um, yes. a quote I saw was that you said the idea was to create a more uh, more opportunities for women because every improv team seemed to be operating with the model of a bunch of guys and one woman. <laughs> At the time, yeah. Uh, the festival started in Chicago, honestly, the, the Funny Women Fest. That's why ours is called the Tiny Funny Women Fest festival because the funny woman festival was in chicago and when madeline khan died uh women around the country just women improvisers around the country started talking and connecting and it made us want to start a festival so uh so susan santiello and uh i'm blanking on the name uh kathleen uh started the festival in uh chicago and the next year, we started a tiny version in Minneapolis, and it's been running ever since on and off. Now it's more regular. At the beginning, some years we'd get together. Some years we wouldn't. Some years we'd just have brunch together, which was lovely. <laughs> but what we realized what we realized at the first festival is, yes, if every improv team has just one woman, that one woman is a point of communication that can connect the entire country in sort of a network, a web from woman to woman. And, you know, a few years ago, I was on a panel at a local university talking about, you know, women in comedy as opposed to men in comedy and the distinction that was being made between our genders, you know. And uh, what do you think about that? I mean, the difference with men and women in terms of improvising. It, you can show, I mean, it, it, it's, easy enough to show the generalities of how men improvise and how women improvise. Uh, Stacey Halal and Mark Sutton had a nice workshop that they used to do called He Plays, She Plays, where they, they wouldn't make a proposal at the beginning of class. They'd just have the class improvise, a mixed class of men and women, and then they'd show the trends of what had happened in that class. So it was undeniable. The class proved the theories themselves. And then, so Stacy and Mark would say, hey, do you realize what you just did? Them, and the, the broad strokes of what they had done. 
is that men improvise sort of sort of fast and bold mm-hmm. and that women improvise sort of emotionally and patiently. And then the proposal is, wouldn't the best improviser have all four of those qualities and all of those abilities as needed? So what can we do to become well-rounded improvisers that have all of these traits? And I think the best improvisers do have, have all of those traits and can apply them as needed. I think so, too. I think that's a great answer to that question, by the way. Um, so what's, what's lining up for you right now, Jill? Wow, we're getting ready to have our summer intensive yeah. in August. Because August is kind of a weird month in Minnesota. We have the Minnesota State Fair and then really nothing else. It's, and Well, we have the Fringe Festival. <laughs> but in terms of theater going, aside from the Fringe Festival, people don't want to go indoors. So it's a great time to have improv intensives. And we're having people come from around the country. And I'm just going to teach... An idea I'm calling cake and frosting because sometimes you like I think about improv as cake and frosting. Sometimes you see people who improvise and it's and it's all gimmicks but no substance. Right. So it's all frosting and no cake. And then sometimes you see people improvise and there's just not a lot of polish to what they're doing. So they're all cake. They're doing good improv, but it doesn't look really good to an audience. So what can we do to put some polish on it? And I'm hoping that getting people, um, getting improvisers together who have those opposing strengths will be able to share with each other and really create. I guess, I guess that's the theme of this, <laughs> this interview. Like, what can we do to co- create a complete balanced improviser who has some, some frosting on their cake and some cake under their frosting? Oh, I love that idea. Minneapolis is a yeah. little far for me. When are you coming to Florida again? I go where people people ask me to go. <laughs> I only go where I'm invited. I guess I'm like a vampire. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed that about you. I noticed your teeth. You know, you looked a little like Giuliani, but uh... <laughs> no. But I, as I, I said, am... I really love your hair. Now, was that a fashion design you invented yourself, or did somebody help you with that? Because you've got very unique hair. Do I have unique hair? Well, but it's in the little uh, ponytails. You got the little—I don't know. Yeah. It's just lovely. You know, it's funny. I—I I always wore little. I wore little buns on top of my head to perform. Mm-hmm. And once, once in a newspaper review, and newspaper reviews for improvisers are few and far between. So, in a newspaper review, I want to say in 1995 or some sometime in the early mid 90s. A newspaper reviewer said that my buns hid uh, little power cables <laughs> because I was an incredibly energetic performer. And I thought that was such a great review that I kept wearing my hair like that. It's based on Henri Bergson's 1901 theory of the encrustation of the mechanical upon the living, in which he said that the less, uh, the more mechanical something appears, the funnier it is. Like that's why when somebody falls down for real, it's not funny. But if somebody's really rigid and they fall down and they're like, whoa, it's really funny. Yeah. Or it's why British people seem funny to us because they're very stiff, like robots. Yeah. Um, 
or it's why a lot of the old silent comedies were a human being fighting a machine. We think of Harold Lloyd hanging from the from the clock, right? Man versus something mechanical. So the the less human something appears, the funnier it is. So putting my hair in little rigid buns that don't look like hair is inherently funny. Well, it is funny. I love watching it. <laughs> and your facial expressions and your object work, as we call it. Um, how would you define object work? We're talking again to the person who's never done improv or heard of improv. Right. Well, we don't have any real props. We don't use real objects on stage most of the time. The great majority of improv shows you see do not use the props in real space. Um, so object work is is believing in the invisible object that you that you're using. So if I if I need to have a hammer in a scene, I I pretend I can I I start to feel the weight of a hammer in my hand even though it's just invisible space and I start to feel what it's like to have the tension of that hammer in my hand. And uh the more you can believe in it, the better effect it has for the audience and for your scene partner and for yourself. That's a pretty good definition. I'm going to put that in my book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do, do. So is your life all improv? What do you do which is not improv? I mean, we're improvising all the time. I know that. But what do you do besides improv? My big hobby is studying Spanish. Ooh. I just love studying Spanish. Uh, I started, my mom and I were coming back from the Galapagos because that was my mom's bucket list item. And as we were on the plane back, the first funny thing she said was, well, now I did my bucket list. What happens now? (laughs) (laughs) But then she asked me, what's on my bucket list? And it got me thinking. And all I could think of was learning Spanish. And if you have a one item bucket list, you should really get on it, right? That's easily accomplishable. So I started studying Spanish. It's been a few years now, partly out of just interest. Secondly, because it's a great way to keep your mind active. Yes. I always thought I had a bad memory, but I'm somehow able to learn Spanish, so it's possible for me to memorize things, and maybe that's a myth I had about myself. And also, it has it's as fascinating to me as doing a crossword puzzle or something, because it is like you're dec- but. There are millions of people around the world who know your secret code. It's very fun to have a secret code that turns out to be the language that millions of people speak. Really? That's fantastic. And there's so, you're right, you visit so many Latin countries and Spanish-speaking countries. That's fantastic. So have you ever been... Right. And Go ahead. It, it does open up little frontiers. That now, in fact, here's how it bled into improv. We have a, a huge theater has a partnership with our neighborhood association, the Lindale Neighborhood Association, to, and I'm teaching a class in Spanish to Spanish-speaking women who live in our area, mm-hmm. which has been fascinating because my Spanish is not strong, and I'm working with people who've never heard of improv. They have no context for what I'm talking about. It's almost like we're inventing it together, and I'm showing them things, and they have to make guesses because they're trying to understand what I'm saying, and I'm saying things that are so odd, because improv is odd. That's what's fun about teaching. That's another thing that's fun about teaching level one improv. You're like, oh, yeah, improv's pretty weird. (laughs) 
It's totally weird. So this weird lady, this weird lady speaking weird Spanish is introducing this weird idea, and we're all having a lot of fun. That's fantastic. Does your theater offer inclusive programs? I, I see you're a friend with Nick John, and uh, we down here have a, an improv for ASD and other uh, disorders, and I wonder if you're offering programs like that as well. We don't currently. Uh, we're partnering this summer with uh, uh, Comedy Sports and the Autism Society mm-hmm. to have, they do great programs uh, for for students with autism, and they're going to have a week-long summer camp at HUGE. Wow. Uh, but HUGE, HUGE for ourselves, our diversity and inclusion programs are mainly focused on uh, increasing gender, sexuality, and and inclusion because improv has been kind of a white guy game since the beginning a white cis guy game so we're trying to trying to shift that balance Uh, I imagine someday we'll think even more broadly about inclusivity It's, it's an incredible art form because it changes people on so many different levels and uh, just being able to step out of that fear zone for a while and take that first risk and, and know that it's okay. Do you do any of those exercises where people celebrate the mistake or the failure or anything like that? There's a game I invented called Loser Ball. Ooh. And Loser Ball has only two rules. Number one, you cannot catch the ball. <laughs> Number two... You must be unbelievably enthusiastic about your friend's inability to catch the ball. So I throw the ball to you. You either drop it or miss it or it goes by you or bounces off you. And we all find something good about what you did. So we're like, yeah, good hustle, Margo, or like, nice hands, or some sort of soccer mom comment to support you in that moment. Uh, and then you, you do eventually find the ball and throw it to someone else. And I mostly do that day one. We learn how to fail. And we learn, what I like about that game is we learn different ways to fail. And you're failing on purpose in in a million different ways. That's fantastic. I love that. I really like that a lot. So, what's what's next for you, Jill Bernard? I mean, you even, you know, the... The, um, sorry, the Dream Machine is so fantastic. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. I forgot, so I'll just edit this stuff out. So, Jill, I love musical improv, and I think you do too, don't you? I do. <laughs> I do love it. I love it very much. I, I've always, my mother and I, my mother is a very creative person and an incredible musician. I have songs since I was a small child. We've always, I've always made up songs with my mom, so I owe her so much in that regard. Uh, she introduced me to that world. Someday, she's never done it yet, but someday we're going to do a show together where she plays for me. I think that would be so fun. That's wonderful. So you have a playful mom then. Yeah, very playful, very creative. And she's very... Uh, She's very flexible. She she performs. She doesn't. She's a music therapist. She's a registered music oh. therapist. And a lot of what she does is she goes out to uh, assisted living facilities or other facilities that does 
does music groups for them. And what's amazing about her is if you can think of a song, she can play it. Like she, she can play by ear. She can listen to a YouTube video and play that song for you. If you sing it to her, she can probably play it. Uh, she's a genius. Oh, what a gift that so, is. So, why? Yeah, so, it's such a gift. So people will just be having memories and she'll, she'll facilitate that and help people uh, connect with connect with their past, connect with their memories, connect with their loved ones. It's really beautiful. Wow. So has she ever accompanied you for a, a show? Not yet. Someday. That would be awesome. Someday. A mommy-daughter act where you could wear the same clothes. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> she has actually, you know, she came and did a sketch comedy show with us. And uh, she played the accordion, and we sang a couple of songs. We did the the, the Star Wars theme. We did uh, Like a Virgin, and we did When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. We've done those numbers on stage, but never improvised anything. Oh, that must be fun. It must be totally fun to be with your mom. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It's really awesome. Well, you keep a good, joyful quoting going on in your life, don't you? But... Uh... And uh, obviously, you're a half uh, full kind of gal, I would imagine. Is that metaphor? <laughs> it was anything point other more? So, do you, I mean, in terms of improv, though, are you creating some new new things? Are you going to stick with the um, the drum machine for a while, or anything else new coming up? I've got a form in mind, but it's in uh, like the pickling stages. It's not grown up yet. I. I have to do a test on it. I want to do a show called The Astronauts where we see uh, we see Houston, you know, we see the engineers on stage and we see the astronauts on video. And then halfway through the show, it switches. We see the astronauts on stage and the engineers back on Earth on video, on the, on the screen. Um, so obviously there's some mechanical uh, issues to that. And also how to improvise using tactics to something that it's, it's like an Apollo 13 sort of a show where something's going to go wrong with the ship. So learning how to improvise that will be interesting because you have to have a little bit of technical knowledge so uh -huh. it sounds right. And then you have to also have uh, special effects in improv are always sort of difficult. Obviously, the, we'll have the tech person highly involved, but how do you make something go wrong technically with with space work <laughs> and we have to have agreement we have to agree that the oxygen level is such and such or you know yeah. oh i love that idea though it's wonderful yeah maybe tom hanks i hope i do you. it i'm sorry maybe i hope he's free yeah i bet he would i bet he'd say yes in a minute because he's a yes and kind sure. of guy absolutely yeah well, um, I'm very, I'm so inspired by you as I know your hundreds or how many students that you've worked with over the years have been. And I certainly look forward to when you're playing someplace around me or I can go see you somewhere. Um, because you really, I think you've been a wonderful role model for women because I think, you know, even when I started several years ago, it was still kind of all boys, all white boys. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think it's a great empowering tool for women as well. 
That's true. That's very true. We have a class at Huge that's um, women, trans, femme, non gender, non-binary students, <clears throat> and it's the work they're doing is very special. It's not a normal one-on-one class. They've made something because we've left them alone to create something. They've created something very special and very unique. It has a bit of, of honesty to it, some truth that I think a typical 101 class wouldn't, wouldn't touch. I, I feel lucky that that program grew up at HUGE. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, again, I think you're a pioneer lady, an innovator, and really, really funny. So, Thank you. So I've enjoyed speaking with you so much. And on the, uh, I'm going to put the podcast out. I'll have links to everything that you'd like me to mention. And um, I just appreciate the time and the energy you spent talking with me today, Jill. It's been a blast. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.